Chapter Two of the Chronicles of Avonlea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Chronicles of Avonlea, by Lucy Maud Montgomery, Chapter Two, Old Lady Lloyd, Part One, The May Chapter. Spencervale gossip always said that Old Lady Lloyd was rich and mean and proud. Gossip, as usual, was one third right and two thirds wrong. Old Lady Lloyd was neither rich nor mean. In reality, she was pitifully poor, so poor that crooked Jack Spencer, who dug her garden and chopped her wood for her, was opulent by contrast, for he at least never lacked three meals a day, and the old lady could sometimes achieve no more than one. But she was very proud, so proud that she would have died rather than let the Spencervale people, among whom she had queened it in her youth, suspect how poor she was and to what straits was sometimes reduced. She much preferred to have them think her miserly and odd, a queer old recluse who never went anywhere, even to church, and who paid the smallest subscription to the minister's salary of any one in the congregation. And her just rolling in wealth, they said indignantly. Well, she didn't get her miserly ways from her parents. They were real generous and neighborly. There never was a finer gentleman than old Doctor Lloyd. He was always doing kindnesses to everybody, and he had a way of doing them that made you feel as if you was doing the favor, not him. Well, well, let old Lady Lloyd keep herself and her money to herself if she wants to. If she doesn't want our company, she doesn't have to suffer it. That's all. Reckon she isn't none too happy for all her money and pride. No, the old lady was none too happy. That was unfortunately true. It is not easy to be happy when your life is eaten up with loneliness and emptiness on the spiritual side, and when, on the material side, all you have between you and starvation is the little money your hens bring you in. The old lady lived away back at the old Lloyd place, as it was always called. It was a quaint, low-eaved house with big chimneys and square windows, and with spruces growing thickly all around it. The old lady lived there all alone, and there were weeks at a time when she never saw a human being except Crooked Jack. What the old lady did with herself and how she put in her time was a puzzle the Spencervale people could not solve. The children believed she amused herself counting the gold in the big black box under her bed. Spencervale children held the old lady in mortal terror. Some of them, the Spencer Road Fry, believed she was a witch. All of them would run if, when wandering about the woods in search of berries or spruce gum, they saw at a distance the spare, upright form of the old lady, gathering sticks for her fire. Mary Moore was the only one who was quite sure she was not a witch. Witches are always ugly," she said decisively. "An old lady Lloyd isn't ugly. She's real pretty. She's got such a soft white hair and big black eyes and a little white face." Those road children don't know what they're talking of. Mother says they're a very ignorant crowd. Well, she doesn't ever go to church, and she mutters and talks to herself all the time she's picking up sticks," maintained Jimmy Kimball stoutly. The old lady talked to herself because she was really very fond of company and conversation. To be sure, when you have talked to nobody but yourself for nearly twenty years, it is apt to grow somewhat monotonous. And there were times when the old lady would have sacrificed everything but her pride for a little human companionship. 
At such times she felt very bitter and resentful toward fate for having taken everything from her. She had nothing to love, and that is about as unwholesome a condition as is possible to any one. It was always hardest in the spring. Once upon a time the old lady, when she had not been the old lady but a pretty, willful, high-spirited Margaret Lloyd, had loved springs. Now she hated them because they hurt her, and this particular spring of this particular May chapter hurt her more than any that had gone before it. The old lady felt as if she could not endure the ache of it. Everything hurt her. The new green tips on the firs, the fairy mist down in the little beech hollow below the house, the fresh smell of the red earth crooked jack spaded up in her garden. The old lady lay awake all one moonlit night and cried for very heartache. She even forgot her body hunger in her soul hunger, and the old lady had been hungry, more or less, all that week. She was living on store biscuits and water so that she might be able to pay Crooked Jack for digging her garden. When the pale, lovely dawn color came stealing up the sky behind the spruces, the old lady buried her face in her pillow and refused to look at it. "'I hate the new day,' she said rebelliously. "'It will be just like all the other hard, common days.' I don't want to get up and live it. And, oh, to think that long ago I reached out my hands joyfully to every new day, as to a friend who was bringing me good tidings. I loved the mornings then. Sunny or gray, they were as delightful as an unread book. And now I hate them, hate them, hate them. But the old lady got up, nevertheless, for she knew Crooked Jack would be coming early to finish the garden. She arranged her beautiful, thick white hair very carefully, and put on her purple silk dress with the little gold spots in it. The old lady always wore silk from motives of economy. It was much cheaper to wear a silk dress that had belonged to her mother than buy a new print at the store. The old lady had plenty of silk dresses which had belonged to her mother. She wore them morning, noon, and night, and Spencer Vale people considered it an additional evidence of her pride. As for the fashion of them, it was, of course, just because she was too mean to have them made over. They did not dream that the old lady never put on one of the silk dresses without agonizing over its unfashionableness, and that even the eyes of Crooked Jack cast on her antique flounces and overskirts was almost more than her feminine vanity could endure. In spite of the fact that the old lady had not welcomed the new day, its beauty charmed her when she went out for a walk after her dinner, or rather, after her midday biscuit. It was so fresh, so sweet, so virgin, and the spruce woods around the old Lloyd place were a thrill with busy spring doings, and all sprinkled through with young lights and shadows. Some of their delight found its way into the old lady's bitter heart as she wandered through them, and when she came out at the little plank bridge over the brook down under the beeches, she felt almost gentle and tender once more. There was one big beech there, in particular, which the old lady loved for reasons best known to herself, a great tall beech with a trunk like the shaft of a gray marble column, and a leafy spread of branches over the still golden-brown pool made beneath it by the brook. It had been a young sapling in the days that were haloed by the vanished glory of the old lady's life. The old lady heard childish voices and laughter afar up the lane which led to William Spencer's place just above the woods. William Spencer's front lawn ran out to the main road in a different direction, but this back lane furnished a shortcut, and his children always went to school that way. The old lady shrank hastily back behind a clump of young spruces. 
She did not like the Spencer children, because they always seemed so afraid of her. Through the spruce screen she could see them coming gaily down the lane, the two older ones in front, the twins behind, clinging to the hands of a tall, slim young girl, the new music teacher, probably. The old lady had heard from the egg peddler that she was going to board at William Spencer's, but she had not heard her name. She looked at her with some curiosity as they drew near, and then, all at once, the old lady's heart gave a great bound and began to beat as it had not beaten for years, while her breath came quickly and she trembled violently. Who, who could this girl be? Under the new music teacher's straw hat were masses of fine chestnut hair of the very shade and wave that the old lady remembered on another head in vanished years. From under those waves looked large, violet-blue eyes with very black lashes and brows, and the old lady knew those eyes as well as she knew her own, and the new music teacher's face, with all its beauty of delicate outline and dainty coloring and glad, buoyant youth, was a face from the old lady's past, a perfect resemblance in every respect save one. The face which the old lady remembered had been weak, with all its charm, but this girl's face possessed a fine, dominant strength, compact of sweetness and womanliness. As she passed by the old lady's hiding-place, she laughed at something one of the children said, and, oh, but the old lady knew that laughter well. She had heard it before under that very beech-tree. She watched them until they disappeared over the wooded hill beyond the bridge, and then she went back home, as if she walked in a dream. Crooked Jack was delving vigorously in the garden. Ordinarily the old lady did not talk much with Crooked Jack, for she disliked his weakness for gossip, but now she went into the garden, a stately old figure in her purple gold-spotted silk, with the sunshine gleaming on her white hair. Crooked Jack had seen her go out, and had remarked to himself that the old lady was losing ground. She was pale and peaked-looking. He now concluded that he had been mistaken. The old lady's cheeks were pink and her eyes shining. Somewhere in her walk she had shed ten years at least. Crooked Jack leaned on his spade and decided that there weren't many finer-looking women anywhere than old Lady Lloyd. Pity she was such an old miser. Mr. Spencer, said the old lady graciously, she always spoke very graciously to her inferiors when she talked to them at all. Can you tell me the name of the new music teacher who is boarding at Mr. William Spencer's? Sylvia Gray, said Crooked Jack. The old lady's heart gave another great bound, but she had known it. She had known that the girl with Leslie Gray's hair and eyes and laugh must be Leslie Gray's daughter. Crooked Jack spat on his hand and resumed his work, but his tongue went faster than his spade, and the old lady listened greedily. For the first time she enjoyed and blessed Crooked Jack's garrulity and gossip. Every word he uttered was an apple of gold and a picture of silver to her. He had been working at William Spencer's the day the new music teacher had come, and what Crooked Jack couldn't find out about any person in one day, at least as far as outward life went, was hardly worth finding out. Next to discovering things, he did love telling them, and it would be hard to say which enjoyed that ensuing half-hour more— Crooked Jack or the old lady. Crooked Jack's account, boiled down, amounted to this. Both Miss Gray's parents had died when she was a baby. She had been brought up by an aunt. She was very poor and very ambitious. Wants a musical education, finished up Captain Jack, and by jingo she ought to have it, for anything like the voice of her I never heard. 
She sung for us that evening after supper, and I thought twas an angel singing. It just went through me like a shaft of light. The Spencer young ones are crazy over her already. She's got twenty pupils around here and in Grafton and Avonlea. When the old lady had found out everything Crooked Jack could tell her, she went into the house and sat down by the window of her little sitting-room to think it all over. She was tingling from head to foot with excitement. Leslie's daughter! This old lady had had her romance once. Long ago, forty years ago, she had been engaged to Leslie Gray, a young college student who taught in Spencervale for the summer term one year, the golden summer of Margaret Lloyd's life. Leslie had been a shy, dreamy, handsome fellow with literary ambitions, which, as he and Margaret both firmly believed, one day would bring him fame and fortune. There had been a foolish, bitter quarrel at the end of that golden summer. Leslie had gone away in anger. Afterwards he had written, but Margaret Lloyd, still in the grasp of her pride and resentment, had sent a harsh answer. No more letters came. Leslie Gray never returned, and one day Margaret wakened to the realization that she had put love out of her life forever. She knew it would never be hers again, and from that moment her feet were turned from youth to walk down the valley of shadow to a lonely, eccentric age. Many years later she heard of Leslie's marriage, then came news of his death, after a life that had not fulfilled his dreams for him. Nothing more had she heard or known, nothing to this day, when she had seen his daughter pass by her unseeing in the beech hollow. His daughter! And she might have been my daughter, murmured the old lady. Oh, if I could only know her and love her, and perhaps win her love in return! But I cannot. I could not have Leslie Gray's daughter know how poor I am, how low I have been brought. I could not bear that. And to think she is living so near me, the darling, just up the lane and over the hill. I can see her go by every day. I can have that dear pleasure, at least. But, oh, if I could only do something for her, give her some little pleasure, it would be such a delight. When the old lady happened to go into her spare room that evening, she saw from it a light shining through a gap in the trees on the hill. She knew that it shone from the Spencer's spare room. So it was Sylvia's light. The old lady stood in the darkness and watched it until it went out, watched it with a great sweetness breathing in her heart, such as had risen from old rose-leaves when they are stirred. She fancied Sylvia moving about in her room, brushing and braiding her long, glistening hair, laying aside her little trinkets and girlish adornments, making her simple preparations for sleep. When the light went out, the old lady pictured a slight white figure kneeling by the window in the soft starshine and the old lady knelt down then and there and said her own prayers in fellowship. She said the simple form of words she had always used, but a new spirit seemed to inspire them, and she finished with a new petition. Let me think of something I can do for her, dear father, some little, little thing that I can do for her. The old lady had slept in the same room all her life, the one looking north into the spruces, and loved it, but the next day she moved into the spare room without a regret. It was to be her room after this. She must be where she could see Sylvia's light. She put the bed where she could lie in it and look at that earth star which had suddenly shone across the twilight shadows of her heart. She felt very happy. She had not felt happy for many years, but now a strange new dreamlike interest remote from the harsh realities of her existence, but nonetheless comforting and alluring, had entered into her life. 
Besides, she had thought of something she could do for Sylvia, a little, little thing that might give her pleasure. Spencer Vale people were wont to say regretfully that there were no Mayflowers in Spencer Vale. The Spencer Vale young fry, when they wanted Mayflowers, thought they had to go over the barrens at Avonlea, six miles away, for them. Old Lady Lloyd knew better. In her many long, solitary rambles, she had discovered a little clearing far back in the woods a southward sloping sandy hill on a tract of woodland belonging to a man who lived in town which in spring was starred over with the pink and white of arbutus to this clearing the old lady betook herself that afternoon walking through wood lanes and under dim spruce arches like a woman with a glad purpose all at once the spring was dear and beautiful to her once more for love had entered again into her heart and her starved soul was feasting on its divine nourishment the old lady found a wealth of mayflowers on the sandy hill. She filled her basket with them, gloating over the loveliness which was to give pleasure to Sylvia. When she got home, she wrote on a slip of paper, For Sylvia. It was not likely anyone in Spencervale would know her handwriting, but to make sure, she disguised it, writing in round, big letters like a child's. She carried her mayflowers down to the hollow and heaped them in a recess between the big roots of the old beech, with the little note thrust through a stem on top. Then the old lady deliberately hid behind the spruce clump. She had put on her dark green silk on purpose for hiding. She had not long to wait. Soon Sylvia Gray came down the hill with Mattie Spencer. When she reached the bridge she saw the mayflowers and gave an exclamation of delight. Then she saw her name, and her expression changed to wonder. The old lady, peering through the boughs, could have laughed for very pleasure over the success of her little plot. "'For me,' said Sylvia, lifting the flowers, "'can they really be for me, Mattie? Who could have left them here?' Mattie giggled. "'I believe it was Chris Stewart,' she said. "'I know he was over at Avonlea last night, and Ma says he's taken a notion to you. She knows by the way he looked at you when you were singing night before last. It would be just like him to do something queer like this. He's such a shy fellow with the girls. Sylvia frowned a little. She did not like Mattie's expressions, but she did like Mayflowers, and she did not like Chris Stewart, who had seemed to her merely a nice, modest country boy. She lifted the flowers and buried her face in them. "'Anyway, I'm much obliged to the giver, whoever he or she is,' she said merrily. "'There's nothing I love like mayflowers. Oh, how sweet they are!' When they had passed, the old lady emerged from her hiding-place, flushed with triumph. It did not vex her that Sylvia should think Chris Stewart had given her the flowers. Nay, it was all the better, since she would be the less likely to suspect the real donor. The main thing was that Sylvia should have the delight of them. That quite satisfied the old lady— who went back to her lonely house with the cockles of her heart all in a glow. It was soon a matter of gossip in Spencervale that Chris Stewart was leaving Mayflowers at the beech hollow for the music teacher every other day. Chris himself denied it, but he was not believed. Firstly, there were no Mayflowers in Spencervale. Secondly, Chris had to go to Carmody every other day to haul milk to the butter factory, and Mayflowers grew in Carmody. And thirdly, the Stewarts always had a romantic streak in them. Was that not enough circumstantial evidence for anybody? As for Sylvia, she did not mind if Chris had a boyish admiration for her and expressed it thus delicately. She thought it very nice of him, indeed, when he did not vex her with any other advances, and she was quite content to enjoy his Mayflowers. 
Old Lady Lloyd heard all the gossip about it from the egg peddler, and listened to him with laughter glimmering far down in her eyes. The egg peddler went away and vowed he'd never seen the old lady so spry as she was this spring. She seemed real interested in the young folks' doings. The old lady kept her secret and grew young in it. She walked back to the Mayflower Hill as long as the Mayflowers lasted, and she always hid in the spruces to see Sylvia Gray go by. Every day she loved her more and yearned after her more deeply. All the long repressed tendernesses of her nature overflowed to this girl who was unconscious of it. She was proud of Sylvia's grace and beauty and sweetness of voice and laughter. She began to like the Spencer children because they worshipped Sylvia. She envied Mrs. Spencer because the latter could minister to Sylvia's needs. Even the egg peddler seemed a delightful person because he brought news of Sylvia, her social popularity, her professional success, the love and admiration she had won already. The old lady never dreamed of revealing herself to Sylvia. That, in her poverty, was not to be thought of for a moment. It would have been very sweet to know her, sweet to have her come to the old house, sweet to talk to her. To enter into her life. But it might not be. The old lady's pride was still far stronger than her love. It was the one thing she had never sacrificed, and never, or so she believed, could sacrifice. End of section one of chapter two.